I'm Andy McQuinn filling in for Matt Townsend today. Today we're going to be talking about Christmas and we'll have critically acclaimed author R. William Bennett to join us. Stay tuned. If home energy bills these days are making you see red, stay tuned to hear about a NASA-derived technology that could paint those blues away. This is Innovation Now. In the mid-1990s, David Page of Merritt Island, Florida, formed a company called Tech Traders Incorporated. His goal was to create an effective and environmentally friendly method for insulating homes. And he used space technology to do just that. With the help of NASA's Technology Transfer Program, the company worked with engineers at NASA and other partners to develop a special paint additive called Insulad. Based in part on technology used for the paint on shuttle booster rockets, the product turns ordinary house paint into heat-reflecting thermal paint. The powdery additive is made up of microscopic ceramic spheres that form a radiant heat barrier when dry. The product is designed to be mixed with any off-the-shelf paint to help hold heat in, reflect heat away, and resist moisture buildup. According to tech traders, Insulad is particularly well-suited for use on metal buildings, cold storage facilities such as walk-in coolers and freezers, and mobile or modular homes. I guess you can say that even though paint with Insulad comes in a myriad of different colors, it's still always green. Innovation Now is produced by the National Institute of Aerospace through collaboration with NASA. Sometimes it's hard to keep up with the latest news and research in pivotal societal issues. BYU's Wheatley Forum presents the research of leading scholars and experts in current social issues and events. Learn, explore, and discuss the world around us with The Wheatley Forum, Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Good afternoon, and welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I am not Matt Townsend. I'm Andy McQuinn filling in for Matt. Matt is going to the airport to pick up his daughter, who has been away in Jerusalem for study abroad. So we wish them a happy and a peaceful reunion. We have a great show today. We have author R. William Bennett. You may know him from the novella The Christmas Gift, and more recently, he has a book called Jacob T. Marley. Welcome, Bill. Well, thank you, Andy. It's good to be here. Uh, I must admit, when I first saw the advertising for Jacob T. Marley, I thought, brilliant. Why didn't somebody think of this decades ago? Uh, what was the inspiration? Well, you know, once you, you do something and, and there's some degree of success, I think an awful lot of people uh, find they go back and rewrite the story a little bit. So truth is, it's probably a lot of different things, but there were two that stand out in my mind. Um, one is watching uh, one of the many versions of Christmas Carol with my family growing up and being very intrigued with this character of Marley. Um, first of all, he has so much remorse. The man is in so much pain. And he he makes these two uh, contradictory statements to Ebenezer Scrooge. One is that people like him 
who who didn't do good to others in life are consigned to wander the earth seeing the good that they could have done but didn't. And then a few minutes later, well, a few paragraphs later, he says that um, Scrooge is going to be visited by three ghosts of his procuring. So they supposedly can't help, but here he is helping. So there's this interesting contradiction. Did he get a pass? You know, what what enabled this person to uh, to come back from the other side and help? Now, that kind of percolated for a lot of years. And then, and then a few years ago, I took my daughter with me on a business trip. We went to New York and we saw Wicked, the play based mm-hmm. on, uh, you know, Wizard of Oz. Right. It tells the backstory. And I remember sitting in, in the intermission and saying to her, now, this would be the way to approach that story of Marley in Christmas Carol. So those two things were a big influence on me. Okay. Um, in terms of the writing style, it seems to me – I've read about 22 pages of Jacob T. Marley so far. It, it seems like this was not just an act of writing a story but also a, a research project. Is that accurate? Oh, a- absolutely. Um, uh, in a couple levels. One, I guess just talk about the writing style itself first of all. When I first began the book, I uh, wrote it in you know, con- our contemporary English and I realized right away that that part of the beauty of Christmas Carol is Dickens' language, uh, and, and on many uh, on many different levels. And if you were gonna, if an author was gonna attempt to do anything to add to that story, you had to work in that language, which wasn't my skill set. So that there was a lot of research, a lot of homework, and a lot of practice that went into trying to figure out how to frame the language. In addition, I'm really a stickler for for details. And so as I worked through the story, I would come to certain things and I thought I really – I want this to feel accurate. I, I want a, a Dickens scholar to be able to read this and say, oh, this person has has done their homework. So I would take these uh, these breaks in writing that sometimes w- would go for hours and sometimes for several days where I would dig deep into a particular subject and make sure that I understood it and then come back and write what might be no more than a sentence – but that hopefully had some authenticity to it. Without giving too much away, will you give us a synopsis? Sure, sure. So uh, the essence of the story is about who is who is this person, Jacob Marley? Uh, what made him such an evil person? Because we know very little about him. Um, why did uh, Ebenezer Scrooge get this final chance uh, before he died to have three ghosts come visit him? Four, if you count Marley. And give him an opportunity to turn his life and not Marley. Or did he? And so that's the setup for the story. The synopsis is that um, what what we do is we first we, – we take a look at, at who Marley is as far as how we know him from Christmas Carol. And then we turn the clock back with the first intention of saying somebody can't be – nobody's born this bad. So what in the world made this man this way? And so we go back and we look at his life. And we find that moment in time when he first began to turn from this really wonderful, uh, gifted child into the the beginnings of the person that we would come to know him as as, as this the adult Jacob Marley. And it's a moment where a little seed uh, is planted of pride in him, and we see how that evolves. So we 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 then turn the clock forward. And I tell the backstory, a little little bit of prequel, a little bit of backstory, how he came to meet Ebenezer Scrooge, why they became partners. And um, and then we go on to um, 
Marley's death and the seven years that have transpired just prior to the beginning of Christmas Carol. And to answer the, the question I posed earlier, why did he get a chance to do this? So we have a little a little kind of other life you know, uh, story going on explaining why Marley was able to do this. And then we go through the same um, series of, of storylines in Christmas Carol, The Visit of the Three Ghosts. But Marley is a, a behind-the-scenes player in this. And we see the role that he plays in helping Scrooge to come to understand and, and um, incorporate in his own heart the messages of the three, the three spirits of Christmas past, present, and future. And from there, um, we see Scrooge turn and we, we see the outcome of that for Marley, what, what happens as a result. You mentioned that seed of pride. Mm-hmm. Uh, will you favor us with a little reading, a passage that talks about that seed oh, of pride? Uh, that, of course. Uh, on page 14, I, yeah. I marked that. So Yes, I'd be happy to. Okay. Pardon me for not being able to recite it from heart. but <laughs> um, So just uh, in, in here, the, let, me, let me give the uh, setup for your listeners. Um, so uh, again, what we're doing is we're trying to look at where this, this problem began for for Marley, and he is in school, and he has demonstrated this incredible proficiency with math. It's it's a gift, really. And uh, the his schoolmaster is about to pay him a compliment. That's where we'll pick up. Okay. Jacob, the old school ma- schoolmaster had said as he pulled him aside that evening, "I want you to know something. You have a gift, young Jacob. Numbers seem to be a native tongue to you." I urge you to further develop this talent and ready yourself to use the skill in some capacity of service to your fellow man. Jacob blushed and looked at the ground, stammering out a thank you. At this one point, the episode might have contributed to Jacob's fulfilling what had been his destiny in life, to take his brilliance with calculation and use it to upgrade the human condition. Indeed, virtuous endeavors, great and small, awaited his contribution— he would have made Marley a household word in the warmest of terms, had he but bid thanks and run home to tell his parents, which they always encouraged, tis not boasting to tell mum and dad. He might not have found his way into this story and into the one that preceded its telling. It was what happened in the next few seconds that changed the very course of his existence. It would not be an exaggeration to imagine that heaven and hell watched the event, each wrestling for the future of the young man. At this sad moment, some errant germ, a mere fleck of an insidious influence, found its way into the virtuous turn of Marley's earth. "'Young Marley,' said the schoolteacher, apparently not having felt he'd achieved the desired effect with his compliment, "'you are, without a doubt, the single best mathematician I have ever taught.'" Of those thirteen words, there was one that held Jacob's attention— He knew them all and had used the sum of them in sentences for many years. But it was the particular arrangement of the thirteen, specifically in the way this one word would betray the other twelve. The word was best. Marley had been no stranger to compliments, having been a boy of greater than average character. He had shown virtues in many areas, which is not to say he did not suffer at times the foibles of youth. Yet this word, this word, best, though it seems quite unlikely— Jacob had never thought of his own accomplishments in relation to those of his peers. He had only considered what ought to have been done and whether he did it well. But now he was given a yardstick with which to measure himself against others, 
and in the first taking of that measure, he was found by this revered teacher to be unequaled. He was the best, and he liked it very much. Do not think he walked out of that school a totally corrupted young man. To the outward eye, he had not changed. But deep within, by reviewing over and over the pleasure that came with those words, he'd planted and was starting to cultivate a vine that would in time, from its roots in his ego, reach to entwine and suffocate his very soul. Thanks. My pleasure. Uh, We're talking with R. William Bennett, author of Jacob T. Marley. How long did it take to write this book? Uh, It was a very intense six weeks. Wow. Beginning at uh, 5 to 6 in the morning and going till 11 o'clock or midnight or beyond uh, six days a week. Okay. I I was expecting six months. Okay. Uh, It felt like six months, let me assure you. Where are you most productive as a writer? Um. Well, time of day or location or, I mean, all yes, of the above? Yes, location. Yeah. I, I am very fortunate to have a home where we have an upstairs bedroom with an absolutely beautiful view of the eastern mountains. And uh, that has become my zone for writing. Um, I, I can Once I'm involved in my writing, I can, I can sink so deep into it, I don't hear anything going on around me. But as I begin, I've got to have quiet. I've got to have some kind of an inspirational view, and it serves the purpose well. Are you the type of writer who passes out rough drafts and asks for feedback, or do you keep it all to yourself until the editor gets it? That, that's an interesting question. Um, I am not the type that passes out drafts. And, uh, you know, when I began writing, I did an awful lot of reading about writing. And, you know, a lot of a lot of authors will do that. Um, but I've also uh, took a lot of direction from some authors that I respect – who wrote that the problem with that method is that what you end up is is a a piece of art by committee because I know I've been asked to read other people's work and I do so and I can't I can't stop the creative side from me saying oh you know wouldn't this be better if this person did this or didn't do that and the 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 creator whether it's a book or whether it's a, a an oil painting or whatever it happens to be they have an image in mind of a finished product, even though they maybe don't know all the pieces yet. And other people aren't able to contribute to that. So, um, no, I, I tend to uh, take a very introspective uh, look at, uh, at what I feel, consider inspiration, and, uh, and then create it. And then when I've got my draft done, turn it over to the editors. Okay. Tough question. When you're writing a book with a Christmas theme, do you feel an extra sense of responsibility in the way you handle the themes? I, I do. I, I would say I feel a real sense of responsibility with anything I write. Uh, you know, it's kind of a profound thought uh, as an author to realize that when you create something that perhaps goes to the, you know, you, you ends up in the Library of Congress, it's going to be there for the rest of our recorded time. And is this something that, that you're going to be proud of? And so I feel like with anything I write, I want the the principles displayed, whether overt or or very subtle, um, and the messages to be something I would feel good about. Now you, that's true with any work. Add to that a Christmas story, um, and you are you know you're you're building your your theme around this very obviously holy holiday. Um, I, I I feel it very strongly, and I feel it's imperative that uh, one does so in a way that's respectful of that. Thank you. We're talking with R. William Bennett, author of Jacob T. Marley, 
I'm Andy McQuinn filling in for Matt Townsend, and we'll be back in a moment and we'll discuss the business of authorship. Will a robot jellyfish report for naval duty in the future? This is Innovation Now, bringing you stories of revolutionary ideas, emerging technologies, and the people behind the concepts that shape the future. Just about every modern military is doing research on drones and robots for long-duration scouting missions. For the Navy, the size of oceans presents a challenge in keeping drones going a long time without needing to return for fuel. Solar power is one answer, but not for underwater drones, obviously. A group of scientists and engineers from the University of Texas at Dallas, from Virginia Tech, and other institutions are taking the approach of copying what nature already knows how to do. Their design for a futuristic sea scout is a robotic version of a jellyfish. The project uses innovations and materials for the design of the jellyfish, as well as for its unique propulsion system. The pulsing swimming action of the robo-jelly is driven by an artificial muscle made from special shape memory alloys. This is combined with a platinum-based catalyst. In seawater, the catalyst's reaction drives a repeating cycle of heating and cooling the memory alloy wires, making them contract and relax just like a real jellyfish does. That makes the entire ocean its potential fuel tank. For Innovation Now, this is Buddy Rubino. Innovation Now is produced by the National Institute of Aerospace through collaboration with NASA and is distributed by WHRV. Visit us online at innovationnow.us. I finally come to think of the aurora borealis as a welcoming door or threshold and flying through it, which I've done countless times, a pure joy. I could easily take you there, of course, and then you'd know the feeling. In fact, it's nearly time to go again. We'll air daily episodes of The Christmas Chronicles at 6.30 p.m. Eastern. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Andy McQuinn filling in for Matt today. We're joined by R. William Bennett, author of Jacob T. Marley. Uh, Bill, what can you now tell us about Charles Dickens, since you've studied him in recent uh, months and years, and how can his writings uh, reflect our times? Well, uh, you know, Dickens uh, is is a a fascinating character. Um, His life had a couple of very high highs and a couple of very low lows and unfortunately ended on a low. Um, but the the conditions that, that brought him to writing Christmas Carol to me were, were fascinating. In fact, that story is as interesting as the story Christmas Carol. You know, Dickens, by the time he was 28 years old, was considered one of the greatest writers in the world at the time, had incredible fame and with that came a pretty healthy do- dose of arrogance. And um, Dickens let that arrogance guide him to uh, stop using his very kind of gentle style to poke fun and yet teach a message at the same time to where he kind of blatantly would criticize and tear down things, including America. In his book, American Notes, he uh, he slashed at what he didn't like about Americans very blatantly. Well, his popularity declined. And um, when he was kind of in a real rut in his marriage, financially, 
uh, from a literary standpoint. He uh, was invited by his sister to come speak at a fundraiser for the for a building for the poor in Manchester, England. Um, he went and he sort of forgot himself and fell back into the mode of what he really considered his gift was his ability to be eloquent about the needs of the poor. And he was met with this incredible ovation from these people. It was incredibly moving. He went walking around Manchester that night, and he had three realizations. And this is the thing that really strikes me. He said, for the first time, I realized that maybe it's not uh, the readers that are wrong. He'd been blaming his reading public for his poor um, recent uh, results. Maybe it's me. Maybe I've lost something. Uh, Two, um, maybe to teach people uh, about needs out there, they shouldn't be bludgeoned on the head with it. But we should, you know, we should gently lay it out like a feast and let them pick up what is most appropriate for them at that time. And three, and this was the most important point, that if we're going to change the world, it isn't going to be changed by force or compunction. It's going to be changed by people changing their hearts. And it was at that moment that he conceived this idea of this old miser with a hard heart that he would call Ebenezer Scrooge and about how this man changed when his heart began to turn. And and so he was in this incredible state when he wrote this story, humble, teachable, uh, desirous of trying to do something that will will really add, add a positive uh, contribution to the world. So so I, I, I found this fascinating and, and actually have written a, a short story about that that night that will uh, be coming out next year. Um, the other thing, though, in, in terms of the second part of your question, tying it to our time, as I did my research, it was interesting to find that when Dickens wrote Christmas Carol, uh, England was just coming off a recession. There was a concern, although they used different terminologies, about the vanishing middle class. Because of the Industrial Revolution, things were picking back up. There was a there was a machine in society to help business uh, get going again. But, um, you know, the rich were first feeling the effect of that, not not the poor. And um, and the concerns were very similar to today. And uh, Dickens did not uh, – he didn't – he wasn't a person that looked down upon business people whatsoever. In fact, that was the reason for the inclusion of the character Fezziwig in Christmas Carol was to say you don't uh, – a counting house person doesn't have to be like Scrooge. He can be like Fezziwig who's kind and generous and still be in business. Um, but what the, probably the most interesting twist to this story is not – Two or three miles from where Dickens spoke that night was uh, a factory, uh, and uh, it was co-owned by a gentleman named Engels. And he had his son, Joseph Engels, who was a manager in the factory. And Joseph Engels was concerned about the exact same problem, disappearing middle class, uh, state of the poor. And he took exactly the 180-degree difference approach than Dickens. And he was a writer. And he wrote uh, a piece called on the the working class, the condition of the working class in England, which eventually linked him, linked him to Karl Marx, and they created the Communist Manifesto right just about the same time. So here you've got these two two works one one fiction, one a uh, uh, socialist uh, uh, piece of um, propaganda, both designed to solve the problem, but one said, "Let's tear down the government, let's build something new that forces people to do the right thing." And the other saying, you know what, if people's hearts don't change, nothing else matters. And uh, and that, w- that was fascinating to me. And it, it, it strikes me that I don't think that the time 
and place in which Dickens got this inspiration was an accident. Would you say that uh, Marley's your favorite Dickens character now? Oh, well, yes, since I've come to know him so well. I mean, you know, we, uh, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, uh, I, I found that um, as I was writing, and, you know, it's a good thing you write in solitary confinement because you tend to talk to your characters when you write and almost ask them what would they do here. And, uh, of course, now I've told everybody that kind of says something <laughs> about my, uh, my mental condition. So your book has a very memorable cover. What will you ex- describe it and explain why sure. you have that cover? Sure. Um, uh, I, ha- I found a young artist who uh, is just a phenomenal uh, artist. And I-, and I found her because of her wor- the work she'd done on some uh, Christmas cards. They're just absolutely beautiful. She works in watercolors. And I actually uh, commissioned her to create a sample cover. And I was in love with this cover. And the publisher – uh, when the, when we made arrangements for the book, I'd given them this work, and I said, "I love this cover. This is the cover of the book." And they said, "Yep, it's very nice. Give us one chance at kind of trying something else." And and I said, "No problem." And so they came back and they presented the cover we see here, which is uh, kind of dark maroon with uh, a picture of a door knocker, the famous door, mock, door knocker from Christmas Carol that uh, turns into to Marley's face when Scrooge comes home from the counting house on Christmas Eve. And the moment I saw it, I thought, as much as I love her artwork, this is this is the depiction that I want because it builds the bridge between the two. You know, the door knocker, you recognize right away it's Christmas Carol is related. But, you know, the knocker had Marley's face. So it's this wonderful junction uh, between the two. And it's embossed and, and uh, uh, is beautiful. And we've gotten uh, a lot of compliments and a lot of feedback on the attractiveness of the cover. So you've had some success. Are you creatively fulfilled or do you still have that inner fire? Oh, my gosh, no. I mean, I, I just uh, – we just kind of uh, opened up uh, the top of the can and, and now uh, I've I've got about 20-some-odd things that I've jotted down that I'd like to write before I die. Um, and uh, it's just such a marvelous process. So, uh, no, I, I, I hope that uh, I'll be doing this uh, – for the rest of my life, and I really hope that's a long time. <laughs> you have someone in your life who really provided a lot of encouragement that really helped you on this journey? Yeah, I appreciate you asking that question, and, and I'd like to mention two. Um, you know, I, I did exactly what they tell you not to do, which is uh, I'd been wanting to write my whole life, but I hadn't. I'd followed a very traditional kind of business corporate path, but I always had this sense that I would know the day that, that I, I should really get get buckled down. And I was uh, 54 years old. And uh, I just had this epiphany one day that now is the time. And I called my wife. I was on a business trip. And uh, I, I said, Would, are you up for the risk of a lifetime? And she knew exactly what I was talking about. And uh, I said, I want to quit. And I want to delve into writing full time. And she wasn't exactly prepared for that um, take. But, you know, really, uh, Bless her soul. Uh, after a couple of minutes of chatting about it, she said, "Look, if you believe in this, I believe in this, and if that's what you want to do, let's do it." Um, and you know, she has her moments that she's you know gotten nervous. This is a very different endeavor, but um, and it's tough to be on the back seat of a tandem bicycle, you know. And she, she says, "I'm turn, trying to turn those handlebars, but they're bolted, <laughs> they're bolted stiff." But she is she is supportive from the standpoint of. Being supportive in the first place that I left my job to do this, but also the 
you know, wanting to know what it is that would most help me creatively at any given moment, whether it's just to disappear and slide the food under the door, <clears throat> excuse me, or um, to reflect on ideas. And, and uh, she's she's a remarkable human being, and and really is. Uh, Played the uh, has played and continues to play a flawless role. The other I would just mention, and I think it's important for parents to all understand this. Um, I, I have a fabulous mother who uh, is actually turns ninety today, and uh, December thirteenth. And she did this. She gave me a gift when I was in second grade, which was a membership to a book of the month club. Uh, and uh, that I would get a series called The Happy Hollisters, start getting – which is kind of a really much younger version of a Hardy Boys. And I would get these once a month in the mail. And she gave me this – helped foster this incredible love of reading. And I think that you'd find any author who loves to write, loves to read. And and it was really her doing that that I think – helped get me to a place where I eventually wanted to create. So she gave me that foundation from a lot of years ago and my wife picked up the baton when it was time to do this and continues to bolster the whole effort. Thanks for sharing that, Bill. You bet. We're talking with author R. William Bennett. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Back in a moment. Sirius XM 143. BYU Radio. BYU Radio is the home of the Cougars. Rise up and become a corporate sponsor today. For more information, call 801-422-1448 or email support at byu.edu. Start your morning right by listening to Marcus Smith and the Morning Team with news, current events, entertainment, and lively conversation. The Morning Show is here to kickstart your day. The movie will be better than the radio. No, 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 no. The radio is always best. The radio is always best. (laughs) Join Marcus and the team for The Morning Show. Weekdays at 9 a.m. Eastern on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. As the demand for worldwide energy increases, so does the need for technologies to fulfill those energy needs. One company is going deep below the ocean blue to find a solution. This is Innovation Now, bringing you stories of revolutionary ideas, emerging technologies, and the people behind the concepts that shape the future. Energy demand across the globe is huge, and resources like oil and natural gas can have harmful effects on our planet. That's why many scientists are looking at ways to harness greener energy sources as we look toward the future. A Swedish company, Monesto, is diving into the challenge by developing the deep green underwater kite. The prototype kite consists of a wing with a turbine and a generator attached to the seabed by a tether. The ocean current flows past the turbine, spinning the generator to create electricity. As the kite glides with the tide, the electricity is then transmitted onshore through a power cable inside the tether. Seawater, being 800 times denser than air, can potentially generate much more energy than wind turbines, and the motion of the kite moving through the sea intensifies the power of the ocean current, so the device can work effectively even in slower water. The kites promise low weight and low cost, adding to their energy efficiency. That makes the idea a serious contender for sustainable, renewable energy. For Innovation Now, this is Crystal Browning. Innovation Now is produced by the National Institute of Aerospace through collaboration with NASA and is distributed by WHRV. Visit us online at innovationnow.us. 
Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm Andy McQuinn filling in for Matt today. We have with us author R. William Bennett. He's the author of Jacob T. Marley, among other things. Um, We'd like to ask you, um, an author hopes to get a good review. And I think authors also hope to get personal notes from readers. Is there anything you can share with us about personal notes? Sure. Yeah, there's um, uh, first of all, on on the positive side, it's uh, I don't think there's anything that any author loves as much as somebody saying that their story uh, changed them. I mean, you want everybody to like it, but but even more than that, you want it to do some good out there. And the the most recent note I just got um, came from a woman who mentioned that she had grown up incredibly poor um, and that, you know, she, she and her family were doing well now, but that she had a great deal of challenge with generosity and that it was hard for her to be generous given the coming from this extreme conditions of want. And she told me that uh, in reading the book, it was one of the first times in her life that she felt she really wanted to give to others. I mean that that's that's such a profound thing to to hear as an author and to think that um you know forget everything else that comes with the enjoyment of having published you know if if you can leave a change like that in the world uh, that alone is almost enough satisfaction now there also are you and I've gotten many kind notes and, and from uh all over the US and Europe um I got an unusual one with a woman who was incensed that I wrote this story and felt that I had completely crossed all boundaries by doing this and concluded with saying – wanting to know if I had gotten permission from the author. (laughs) And uh, I was going to explain to her that that he's been dead since 1870. Um, but and, and this this actually came online and while I was pondering an answer that would not sound cynical and trying to be as kind as I could – Probably 20 responses appeared online, and, and the best one said, ma'am, if he did get permission from the author, you really do need to read his book then. <laughs> so uh, That's good. I'm sure she felt very badly, <laughs> not realizing uh, Charles Dickens has long since uh, been in the grave. <laughs> the Christmas book niche is alive and well. It seems to have really kind of exploded in the past 15 years or so. Is that mm-hmm. accurate? It, it absolutely is accurate. And, you know, out here uh, where we are today in, in Utah, a lot of us look at uh, Richard Paul Evans and his mm-hmm. book, The Christmas Box, is one who really kind of broke open this this market. Truth is, when you, you get out of our little confines here, uh, there are uh, several authors, uh, Donovan Lear, Debbie McComber, who who – regularly put out a Christmas book and, and regularly sell millions of copies of these books. And it is it is it, all over the nation. Um, you know, you go uh, – it doesn't matter what city in the U.S. I've been in from, you know, New York to Orlando to uh, Nashville, that uh, this time of year, people consume Christmas books uh, at a voracious rate, What's which it, we're all very happy for. Yeah. <laughs> What's it like to uh... – from a business perspective, mm-hmm. be a part of an industry that has so much energy. You know, it's it's exciting, but it's it is a business, and I think that especially anytime you have a creative artistic endeavor, um, that also, of course, as all of them do, requires a business side. It's a little jarring sometimes because you'll create this thing, and you know, you just want it to just work, and you don't want to have to deal with the intricacies of the business. 
But I think a very important part of this is to remember it is a business for all people involved. It's a business for the, the retail bookstore owners. It's a business for the online booksellers. It's a business for the printer. Um, and everybody, you know, everybody wants to stay in business. And, and you have to recognize that everybody's business model has to work for this whole thing to work. I'd like you to create a mental visual for us here, mm-hmm. a pie chart. Okay. What percentage of your time is going into authoring? What percentage of your time is based in marketing activities? Well, let's take it from the let's, – let's make the pie a particular book. So in this case, Jacob T. Marley. Um, if you look at the time that I've spent on all the various aspects of trying to help the book be successful, authoring is uh, – obviously as time goes by, continues to drop as a percentage, but really – Two, three, four percent of the time. Um, a lot of people have a vision that as an author, you just sit there and uh, stare out the window and create, and that's certainly a part of it. But um, in today's industry, even the biggest publishers and the most successful authors with the biggest publishers are expected to do quite a bit of their own marketing. So, you know, outside of the little bit of time you spend authoring, um, you're going to spend probably a good third of your time, or should spend a good third of your time in social media. Um, not, and, you know, not just posting, but really trying to create uh, a set of interesting uh, dialogues that will want people to come back and, and follow you and, and attract more and more followers on all the various social mediums that, that we're aware of. You've got another third of your time that is out there in the public presence. You know, it's an old-fashioned concept, but uh, still doing book signings or going and doing book clubs or speaking, uh, people – People like to meet the author. And I, and I go to these things and I think, why do people want to meet me? I'm not very interesting. In fact, maybe your listeners are, have been thinking that for the last 35, <laughs> 40 minutes. But, and yet, but I go and I hear an author and, and I'm fascinated, you know, and I want to know about their story and why they created all the things you asked me. And so an important part of it is establishing uh, that. And for every person that maybe comes to hear you speak or is in a book club or meets you in a bookstore – uh, you know, they'll speak to 20, 25 people at least. And, and so there's a, there's a great reverberating effect from presence. It is, you, there's no way in the world that you can exist only in the social media presence. So you've got a, you know, you've got a third between those two things. And then um, if you really want to do this, if you want to be a successful author, I'd say you've got another slightly less than a third, so we'll leave room for the actual writing, um, of the time that's doing your homework. You know, understanding uh, exactly who is your market, where will this work, you know, what market uh, segments will purchase the book, how do you promote it. Uh, Again, even if you have a commercial publisher, it's up to you to do these things. So, for example, one of the things that uh, we did um, is uh, that we, meaning the publisher and myself, is is we got me to these Dickens festivals all over the country or Dickens festivals. Well, you can't have a better – market than well there's two one is a dickens fest you got a whole bunch of people that dress up like charles dickens and spend the day walking around eating english treats and and speaking in victorian language man that's my audience and so those are great things to go do even i'd say far more successful is appearing at in doing book signings at uh, stage plays of christmas carol christmas carol is put on in hundreds and hundreds of places Every year in this country from, you know, 50-seat community theaters to 2,000, 3,000-seat presidium theaters. And again, you have a pre-selected audience. And, and so it's the homework that you do as a writer that helps you try to identify those things and put yourself in the right places. 
Jacob T. Marley's been out about a year. Mm-hmm. Do seasonal stories have about one season of prime shelf life in bookstores? No, I would actually say it's the reverse. Um, you know, a, a book that doesn't have any particular seasonality to it has a very narrow window to be successful. You know, it, it comes out, it's got the buzz associated with it, and if it doesn't capitalize on the buzz right up front, um, it is really hard to relaunch. But by having a seasonal book, you get an automatic relaunch each year, especially when it's associated with Christmas because people keep rebuying Christmas books. You know, they'll as happened to me last year, um, somebody – uh, bought a copy of the book and enjoyed it. And uh, just speaking with this uh, gentleman a few nights ago, and he he went into the bookstore and bought seventy two copies of it this year because he wanted to give it as gifts to friends and and family. Um, and so now it's got to be good. You know, if it's not a good story, it it'll uh, <laughs> it'll sink pretty fast, and you'll have a lot of of uh, uh, window props. Um, but um, if you know if you've got a reasonably good story. You get a chance to keep resurrecting this over a series of several years. So you look in a bookstore now at, at some of the popular Christmas books. Just before I came, I was did a little search on what are the most popular Christmas books. And the one, uh, the, I think it's called The Best Christmas Pageant Ever. I, I don't know how many years that's been out. It's, I think it's been at least 20 years. And that is, I think, number six. Hmm. Will you share with us some of the upsides and downsides of author appearances? Sure. Sure. I, You know, the... Uh, writing is a very solitary endeavor. So one of the upsides of an author appearance is it's one of those rare moments you get to connect uh, with your audience. You know, if you're a if you're a, a musician, you know, every time you perform, you're there with your audience. And you know, authors don't have a moment where they're all uh, you know lifting your body and carrying it through the crowd and you know that sort of thing. So it's it's a it's a rare time, and that's wonderful. Um, you know, the downside is that I think that it's. It's it's hard and it's tiring, and, and no matter how good you are as an author, you inevitably have some of those events where you sit for two hours and, t- you know, two people walk by and one of them wonders what's wrong with you because nobody else is, is stopping to talk to you. And in addition, you'll you'll inevitably get contrarians who come up and want to challenge you on what you wrote or, or something. And so, you know, that's, that's life, but that does happen as well. Okay. Uh, here's a question for the would-be authors sure. in the audience. What nugget of advice would you offer to somebody who wants to create a quality work that will be entertaining, worthwhile, that would stand up to criticism, and that would create a significant stream of revenue? Oh, that's an easy set of hurdles. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's a great question. And by the way, I was speaking to uh, the gentleman, one of the co-authors of Chicken Soup for the Soul, and uh, he was telling me that uh, the, the, the studies say that about 96-plus percent of us say we want to write a book. So the would-be authors, there's quite a, quite a few floating around out there. But I think, I think the first piece of advice I would give is no matter how passionate you are about creating this, remember you have to create it for an audience. You know, and, it, and you have to know who that audience is and you have to serve their needs. And if you want to write the story that only you want to write – and then stand back and let um, let whoever might be interested show up, you're going to have a hard row of it. Um, I think the second thing is whether you're a discovery writer like I am, where you go ahead and you start at the beginning of the story and then you just write your way through, or whether you're a very uh, a planned writer where you will create all your outlines and go back and, and maybe spend months on your outlines before you ever put down a word. Either approach uh, is fine. They both work. But in the end, you've got to do your homework. 
you've got to make sure that it holds together and it's tight and that uh, there's an appealing storyline and, and it uh, whether you're writing horror or whether you're writing a Christmas book, that it 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 meets the expectations set by the way the book has been prese- excuse me presented to your potential reader. And I, I think remember you're serving them. You know, you're not serving yourself. Um, and uh, even though it's most authors who like to write would in, enjoy the process. So I, I think, you know, I could go on for a long time, but those are some of the first things. Oh, you know, I mean, I'm going to add one more. I, I got this great advice from an English teacher in high school. Great writing requires practice the way uh, great tennis and great basketball and great singing require as well. And it, one of the best things you can do if you want to be a writer is write. Write about everything. Write about your feelings. Write about what you observe. Write movie reviews of a movie you just went to, even if nobody's going to read it. But it takes practice to learn how to fashion the language in a way that gets your idea out. Terrific insights. Thank you. We're talking with author R. William Bennett, author of Jacob T. Marley. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Andy McQuinn sitting in for Matt today. We'll be back in a moment. New technology is designed to let you talk with your hands to your computer. This is Innovation Now, bringing you stories of revolutionary ideas, emerging technologies, and the people behind the concepts that shape the future. The Microsoft Connect Game System Controller is a favorite of hackers, circuit benders, and inventive people looking for new ways to interact with their computers. Now, the company that created the first Kinect is working on a version that does away with needing to hold a tracker to be seen by games. Prime Image, the original developer of Kinect technology for Microsoft, wants to go further into gestural technology, that is, controlling your computer by the gestures you make. Earlier, Kinects relied on a sort of radar rangefinder to compute your distance from the screen. Now, the system is using stereoscopic cameras to figure out that third dimension of depth. When that's locked in, Tracking arm and leg motion, even without tracking lights or markers, becomes much easier to compute. Gestural interfaces aren't a fantasy. You've already been trained on them by apps on pocket devices, where your fingers pinch or sweep in certain directions to control what's going on. Now, Prime Image seeks to scale that up so you can just move and be understood by any computer. Waving bye-bye for Innovation Now, this is Buddy Rubino. Innovation Now is produced by the National Institute of Aerospace through collaboration with NASA and is distributed by WHRV. Visit us online at innovationnow.us. What song changed my life? There are a lot of songs that have changed my life. It's a totally brutal question to try and answer. Every musician has that one song that changed their life. Join Tony Award winner Leah Solanga, American Idol finalist Brooke White, and more of your favorite artists as they explore their lives before and after they heard that one song that changed everything. Watch The Song That Changed My Life, Monday nights at 7.30 on BYU-TV. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Andy McQuinn filling in for Matt today. We're joined in studio by author R. William Bennett, who wrote Jacob T. Marley. Uh, We're glad you're sharing your insights with us. And I have another question about uh, the writing process and how important is it 
to have a good editor? It, it is absolutely essential. Um, in fact, for those out there that want to self-publish, uh, even if you're going direct to ebook, which means you don't even have to worry about the printing, you still need to hire spend the money to hire an editor to do the, do the work for you. I mean, an editor is a very a very different editing is a different skill set than writing. And uh, when what an editor will do for you, I mentioned that I don't I don't pass out drafts to be read. I, I work through the whole thing. But at that moment, then I, I critically depend upon a good editor. And I had a fabulous editor um, from my publisher for Jacob T. Marley. But uh, you know, one of the things they will do is they will go through and help you with storyline, and uh, to just to make sure that um, there seems to be a good flow. Uh, in the story, and like like a, a good movie, you know, it has to have its emotional valleys and peaks come kind of at the right time. The second thing that they will do is help you with continuity. And sometimes th- this is where you can really trip as an author. You're so close to your story. There's a lot of things you had in your head you, you thought you wrote, and you never actually got them to the page. And so they will help you find breakages in continuity. This character appeared over here and said they would do something, but they never did over here. Or something as simple and little as, wow, they had blue eyes on page 10 and they had brown eyes on page 50. Um, and they, they look for all those kinds of problems. And then third, they, they, you know, it's, a, it's a grammar check. It's just, is your sentence structure right? Um, and again, you, you get so close to your work uh, as an author that I don't care who you are, you have to have a second set of eyes to go after that. A, a, a great editor is, is a crucial uh, player in bringing a book uh, to a successful conclusion. What are your feelings about redemption as a theme in Christmas Christmas literature? Oh, I, I mean, obviously, I, I feel very strongly about it with the message of, of Marley. Um, and it's, it is the, uh, uh, you know, it, it's the message of Christmas. I mean, really, Christmas is, um, we, although we try to uh, sterilize it, uh, quite a bit these days in, in all places in, in our society. It is the it is the story, the message is about Christ and and regarding that it's it's about it's about what he taught. And and redemption is an essential part of that. Um and what I find interesting is is religious people understand that and really flock to stories that make the point. But even people who even people who get very upset about the public display of perhaps creches on the town uh, town hall front lawn, still the, the essential meanings of Christmas seem to be just as meaningful to them, that this is about a time of forgiveness. Uh, it's about a time of demonstrating caring. It's a time of pulling together and about other th- and it's about redemption it's a, it's about wanting to right wrongs and uh, heal relationships and that is so remarkably universal regardless of what religion you belong to or even if you're not a part of anything organized so you've dealt with characters who have learned life lessons what life lessons have you learned in the past year uh, about about 280 of them, I think. But uh, in the time we have left, I, I, where I'd probably go first is, uh, and maybe just the only one I'll mention, is um, you know, inspiration is an important part of all of our lives. And um, sometimes we want to yield to the experts. And I think when we feel inspiration, whether it's you know, somebody who does what you do in, in conducting radio interviews, whether it's somebody that writes like me, whether it's you gentlemen behind the uh, – behind the mic here, working the technology end of this, that if, um, if you get these thoughts and ideas of inspiration, tr- trust them and pursue them. Um, uh, there's there's a, a, 
a plaque that I saw when I was in England, actually doing a little bit of research, that really touched me. And it was in Stratford, which is actually where uh, the Shakespeare Theater is. And it was over a little canal bridge. And the, the canal system there was you know, 100 years ago was the popular mode of transportation. And there was apparently a lock that was uh, falling apart. And there was a team of people in the 60s that must have been told that it couldn't be repaired, but they wanted to restore this lock for historical significance. And they did it. And I don't know much about the story, and I've tried to find out more, other than there's a plaque held, put up on the side of this beautiful lock in this gorgeous little community that says, we were not experts Therefore, we did not know what we could not do, and I think that that's a that's a, a bit of great wisdom. Don't don't forget to to study and know what you're doing, but trust your gut. When you get that little flash of inspiration that says this is a good idea, follow it. And when I've done that, it's uh, if I remain true to that feeling, generally things come out very well. You touched a little bit on social media earlier when we were talking about the business of authoring. Uh, I have another question along those lines. I used to ride public transportation quite a bit. And years ago, I would see people with books. More recently, you see people on their electronic devices Mm -hmm. uh, and on social media. How is that impacting your industry? Well, um, you know, that's an interesting question because, um, you know, as as you know, if you look at the newspaper advertising rates, you know, the back page, is the most or has been the most expensive page because you hold that newspaper up on the bus and you're showing it to everybody in the bus. And so a book cover was a very big, uh, a big marketing piece. And you saw, as you said, a bunch of people reading and you look around, uh, you know, the back of someone's iPad doesn't tell anybody what they're reading or if they're reading at all. So on on one standpoint, it it changes it from the standpoint of even if the reading is as as popular as it's ever been, um, the old places where people would learn about what was a good read isn't isn't there anymore. Now, on the other hand, it compensates for it in remarkable ways. You take sites like Goodreads where, you know, you have th- hundreds of thousands, I don't know what the count of people is on Goodreads, um, that are talking about what they read and it uses that fabulous uh, technical connection to say, of the books you like, here's the people that like the books you like and by the way, here's the other books they like. And you get you get to find things out you could never find out. So I, I think like most things, um, we see some things go away, and sometimes we worry about it, but we have other things come in that that take their place and sometimes far better ways and I think you just have to you have to roll with it and learn what works. What do we expect from you in the future creatively oh there's there's several uh, projects i've I've got a novel I just finished, uh, an allegorical story about faith um, that uh, we're we're getting ready to place right now um, and I'm very eclectic. I was very uh, moved several years ago when I took a tour of the aircraft carrier Intrepid that is now in, in, in New York Harbor. And uh, there is a tremendous story behind that uh, particular uh, warship. And so I've begun work on what's essentially a life story of the ship and, and the people who built her and the people that served on her. And, and that, that's going to be a few years before it's out. But I'm very excited about that project. How do people learn more about what you're doing? Well, there's a rwilliambennett.com, which I regularly update at least once every 45 days. Obviously, after all this talk about social media, I've got to be a lot better at that. I need some help there. Um, but there's there and, the, you know, the Facebook pages and, and, and Twitter and, and those sorts of things. Uh, that's the best places to go. Okay. Uh, Bill Bennett, R. William Bennett, as it says on the book cover. Thank yeah. you very much for joining us. Pleasure having you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the time.
Okay, this is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back in a moment. Thinking Aloud invites thoughtful thinkers and creators to share their insights into the ideas and art of the world around us. Whether it's music, medicine, sport, science, or literature, Brigham Young University scholars can share eye-opening ideas and stimulating conversation on all. Join our host, Marcus Smith, for discussion and exclusive interviews weekdays at 1.30 and 8.30 Eastern on Sirius XM 143, BYU Radio. For regular updates on BYU Radio programming, sports, and other behind-the-scenes news, follow BYU Radio on Twitter. Just search for BYU Radio, hit follow, and enjoy our tweets on news, live updates on shows, and much more. Talk about good. With so much information flying at you every day, how do you know what stories are talkworthy? Join Kim Stilson and her guests to help you keep up on the world around you. Tune in for Talkworthy Monday and Friday at 4 Eastern on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. This Christmas season, BYU Radio brings you the true story of Santa Claus with our series, The Christmas Chronicles. Starting December 11th, we'll air daily episodes at 6.30 p.m. Eastern until the 24th. Or you can hear the whole uninterrupted series on Christmas Eve at 8 p.m. or Christmas Day at 2 p.m. Eastern here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Talk about good. Parenting can be a tricky business, and we all know families don't come with a handbook. That's why we can learn from world-traveling family coaches, the Ayers. Join the Ayers on the Road for family, parenting, and general life advice, Monday and Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. KBYU FM, HD2 Provo. Are there some global issues you wish you could know more about or could get an inside perspective on? Notes from the Kennedy Center presents lectures and seminars from international diplomats and scholars discussing issues and events from all over the world. Become a more informed global citizen and tune into Notes from the Kennedy Center weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Music simply sounds better from a live studio. Listen to organic music on Highway 89, Monday through Saturday at 10 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio.
Freshen up your mornings with Marcus Smith and the BYU Radio Morning Show. Lifestyle, news, current events, science, technology, and just about anything else. You'll be feeling good all day long when you start your day with Marcus Smith and the Morning Show. Weekdays at 9 a.m. Eastern on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Have you ever wanted to travel the world? Now you can experience the vibrant cultures and customs of countries across the globe and cities across America through the eyes and ears of folk artist Eric Dowdle. Tune in to Traveling with Eric Dowdle and travel the world weekdays at 9 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm Andy McQuinn filling in for Matt today. Uh, This is the first opportunity I've had to offer an on-air tribute to a great man who was a wonderful broadcaster and an amazing actor. I'm quite certain that you know some of his work. My friend Mr. Ken Sansom passed away a short time ago. As an actor, Ken had many roles. You may know him best as the voice of Rabbit in many of Disney's Winnie the Pooh productions. He performed in that role for many years, going all the way back to the 80s. Ken also took part in many memorable movies. He was in the film The Sting, which won seven Oscars. He was in Funny Lady, Airport 1975, Herbie Rides Again, and many others. Some of his many TV credits include New Heart, Welcome Back Cotter, Chips, The Waltons, Charlie's Angels, The Brady Bunch, Remington Steele, Knott's Landing, Eight is Enough, and the list goes on and on. Ken also had a radio show which lasted for several years here in Utah. It was called Sansom and Then Some. He performed as many different characters on that program, and much of what he did was ad-lib, unscripted. I was fortunate to collaborate with Ken on a few projects. One of those projects was a story that I wrote called Joseph the Knight. We'll play that recording in a moment. Now, if you've ever had aspirations to become an actor, a voice actor, or a great storyteller, then consider this performance by Ken as a master class. You'll hear him bring very uh, you'll hear him bring different characters to life. You'll hear him use space for dramatic effect, and you'll hear him effectively perform a wide range of expressions, everything from a whisper to a shout. And Ken did it all with ease. Here's Ken Sansom performing Joseph the Knight. Joseph the Knight. Joseph was a squire who aspired to be a knight. He longed to wear the armor, but he did not want to fight. The king admired Joseph and felt his loyalty would not cease. So Joseph reached his goal without a deed, for the kingdom was at peace. Joseph kept his armor polished, and his horse was sleek and grand. His presence often drew applause as he traveled across the land. His travels often took him to a maiden he adored. He'd call out the name Rebecca as he polished up his sword. The couple had to hide to hold each other tightly. Rebecca's father was protective, and he checked up on her nightly. 
Times were quickly changing, and Joseph's bliss was short indeed. A hostile army was approaching, and Joseph had a call to heed. He was paired with one Sir Stephen, a bold and eager soul. The king gave them the western border to survey and to patrol. Joseph began to gesture to seek a safer task, but Stephen rushed him to his horse before his mouth could ask. Curse this knighthood, Joseph thought. I loathe this sense of dread. My armor's presence suits me well, but it now may yield me dead. The two knights began their journey, and Joseph broke silence with a query. Sir Stephen, how perceive ye our status? To me it seems quite dreary. Stephen swung his horse around and stared Joseph in the eye. I love this kingdom and its people, and for them I'd gladly die. Stephen then dismounted and walked along the trail, his voice filled with animation as he spoke his earnest tale. My whole life I've practiced with my swords and with my bows, and in a thousand dreams I've faced a thousand foes. I am eager for a conflict, so I may prove that I am loyal, that I may test the skills I've practiced and measure all the toil. And if a sword shall pierce me and I am laid to rest, at least I'll then die knowing I gave my king my best. And what of you, Sir Joseph? What thoughts lurk behind those eyes? Let's enjoy these peaceful moments I'd best not verbalize. The determined Stephen raised his voice and pleaded with pure intent and zeal, Our enemy hates goodness, and the threat is very real. If you don't bathe your mind in virtue and prepare to make your stand, you'll wear shackles of deep sorrow forged by your own hand. Joseph spat upon the ground and answered back with spite, I have things to live for. This war's not fit to fight. Uneventful days passed. Then the knights found a girl in great distress. Sir Stephen raced up to the scene, her comfort to address. The girl was crouched upon a cliff which overlooked the sea. Her tiny brother on the ledge below was fearful as could be. Stephen asked for the scared boy's name as his heart began to pound. He then assured little Henry he'd soon be on safer ground. Stephen's face showed worry. But he smiled when he saw the wooden toy which sat upon a larger ledge just beneath the stranded boy. The girl looked up at Stephen, and to her knees she fell. Our dead father made the toy for Henry. Won't you fetch it as well? Stephen shed his armor and threw his sword onto the sand. Joseph knelt beside the girl and held her trembling hand. With more confidence than caution, Stephen lowered himself to the larger ledge. Joseph, Stephen called as he looked up at the edge. Young Henry's not quite fond of cliffs. They're just not as he expected. Won't you grab him as I lift, and we'll have his plight corrected? With a wink, Stephen grabbed Henry's waist and gently raised him high. In a moment, the girl embraced her brother, expressing just a sigh. Stephen leaned to grab the toy, and the ledge began to give. Twas then Stephen's eyes revealed he had no more life to live. 
Joseph clutched the children and turned their eyes away. He then could find no trace of Stephen beneath the ocean's spray. He spent his life in preparation. This death, it seems quite sad. He wanted to face armies, but he perished for a lad. I will take you home, Joseph spoke as he gathered Stephen's things. Do not fear for Stephen. To a pure heart, solace clings. Masking all emotion, Joseph took the children home. He nodded to their mother and explained he had to roam. Good Sir Joseph, the woman begged, won't you stay this night? The enemy soldiers are near us now, and it gives me quite a fright. No enemy will disturb you, on that you can depend. I have other pressing matters, and to them I must attend. The woman kept on pleading as Joseph tried to leave. She pointed at the children as she tugged upon his sleeve. Oh, stop your groveling woman. Of this I am quite bored. If you must have your protection, I shall leave you Stephen's sword. Joseph dropped the weapon, and then he turned away. He was off to see Rebecca, and the trip would take all day. He rushed across the countryside with no thought of slowing pace until he saw a figure on the trail whose cloak did hide his face. Joseph stopped his horse and gazed at the man below. He then drew out his sword and asked, Are you a friend or foe? I bring you no harm, the figure said, but a glimpse of what may be. Why don't you dismount and look at the puddle to the left of me? Joseph held the figure at sword's length as he leaned over the watery hole. He then quickly stumbled backwards, as fear had struck his soul. The Joseph in the puddle looked exhausted and forlorn. His face was cut and bleeding, and his cape was soiled and torn. What does it mean, this wretched image before my eyes? Is it some form of magic, or someone in disguise? The cloaked image answered, Joseph... Listen to what I say. The image there is yours, should you choose to fight this day. Enemy soldiers have arrived, and you must choose what's right. Your duty now awaits you, should you choose to be a knight. Joseph stirred the puddle, for he refused to be a pawn. When he looked back up, the stranger then was gone. To follow my desire is what I esteem as right. I shall not become that sorry, bloodied knight. Joseph reached Rebecca's home, but not before news of a vicious battle. He gave his horse some drink and then took off the saddle. Rebecca's father was in the doorway, and Joseph explained his border duty was done. The smiling knight then asked to see Rebecca as his armor glistened in the sun. The old man's expression turned to grief as he passed his hand before the night. Why do you disgrace my household? You've chosen not to fight. You are banished from my doorstep. You are banished from my land. A coward shall not hold my fair daughter's hand. The anguished Joseph fled the home and raced back to the sea, he hoped a ship would take him on and help him to be free. Days passed by, and no ship approached the shore. 
Joseph's food ran out, and he left to find some more. Joseph had not traveled far when his face turned cold and pale. He again saw the cloaked figure before him, standing on the trail. The figure pointed at a puddle. Joseph, look this way. The image there is yours, should you choose to fight this day. The Joseph in the puddle was the same one as before. Joseph shouted at the figure, Bother me no more! The knight threw stones upon the puddle. This I cannot bear. When Joseph looked back up, the figure was not there. I will gather food and flee this land. To me it is a curse. I will make great haste before my comfort fares much worse. Joseph traveled on till he sustained another fright. He stumbled off his horse as he approached the ghastly sight. T'was several fallen comrades Joseph now did find, and the body of a mother whom he had left behind. In that moment, Joseph felt his troubled heart would rip. He beheld Sir Stephen's sword within the woman's grip. Joseph moaned as he wondered what price his soul would pay. He then noticed the figure and a puddle not too far away. Joseph felt his head for doom was now anointed. He staggered to the puddle as the figure downward pointed. The water in deepest, darkest black was painted. Joseph beheld and then he fainted. Joseph awoke to see other knights fulfilling their darkest roles, burying fallen friends in shallow holes. A knight told Joseph to prepare to attack at dawn. Joseph glanced toward the puddle, which curiously was gone. Joseph looked at those around him, but the image did not last. His mind began to focus on the pictures of his past. He thought about lost virtue and a heart that felt disgrace. He resolved to join his comrades as tears trickled down his face. Joseph slept not at all that night. His soul was wrung within his frame. He hoped he would have courage when his fateful moment came. The next day's gruesome battle brought Joseph his life's most dreadful fright. Yet he forged ahead with boldness, hoping his actions then were right. Joseph fought with all his strength, but awaited death with dread. Then his eyes beheld the foe, whose club did strike his head. T'was several days later when Joseph woke and learned he had not died. His eyes beheld Rebecca, young Henry, and his sister by his side. Rebecca softly spoke. You're here now as a guest. My father's welcome is extended, should you care to stay and rest. She then explained the enemy had retreated into a distant land. She then tightened up his bandage and kissed him on the hand. When Rebecca and the children left the room, something appeared from behind the door. "'Twas that same strange figure Joseph had seen three times before. 
Why am I not dead? Joseph asked. The water in the puddle was darkest black. Have you come to take me now? Is there something that you lack? The figure's hands threw back its hood, revealing Stephen's face. Joseph's body trembled, and his heart was keeping pace. With eyes that pierced, Stephen spoke. There's something you should know. The ugly blackness was your soul, had you not engaged your foe. Stephen then left the room and never did return. Joseph then was grateful for all that he did learn. Joseph gathered those around him and proclaimed his soul's new start. It's not the armor that makes the night. It's the conviction in his heart. That was the voice of Ken Sansom, who passed away in October. I'll be back to share a couple of the lessons that Ken taught me in a moment. When you live in crowded cities and you want more parks, the answer may be under your feet, four stories under. This is Innovation Now, bringing you stories behind the ideas that shape our future. You may have already heard of New York's High Line Park, the linear green space built over people's heads on top of a stretch of abandoned elevated train tracks. That unique park in the sky has triggered a wave of new thinking among urban planners worldwide. It got them thinking about unconventional places to find new park space in crowded urban environments. And you're going to love where the story is going next. The answer to the high line may be the low line, an underground park. Reclaimed from the Delancey Street subway station on New York's Lower East Side. Much Lower East, in fact. Built in 1903, the cavernous 13-acre underground site boasts wide spaces and very high ceilings with room for real trees to grow if they could get sunlight. A former NASA engineer working on the project has invented a system of fiber-optic light pipes which bring enough free daylight down below, making it feel like you're on the surface and letting plants grow in a year-round climate-controlled park as well as other spaces. For Innovation Now, this is Buddy Rubino. Innovation Now is produced by the National Institute of Aerospace through collaboration with NASA and is distributed by WHRV. Visit us online at innovationnow.us. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm Andy McQuinn filling in for Matt today. Before the break, we were talking about the great man, the great actor, Mr. Ken Sansom, whom we lost in October. Ken had many great roles in film, in television, and on radio, and you probably know him best as the voice of Rabbit in Disney's Winnie the Pooh. Um, I'd like to share a couple of little stories, things that Ken taught me. He carried around a briefcase, and one day he opened up his briefcase and pulled out a check, and he was really excited about it. And he showed me the check, and it was for one of his film productions, and it was for something like $1.64. And he said, it's not really the amount, it's the concept, residuals. So if you think about this day and age in which we live with the Internet, 
Uh, that's a very important concept. Uh, people can provide for their families if they create a work of art and put it out there, and, and it can uh, produce a lot of money uh, for years to come. So residuals, good concept. Uh, Ken had many what I call crown jewels on his resume. Just It was a long list of jobs that people, actors, would only dream of getting. And when I would watch him work, he was always still soft and humble and teachable and always interested in knowing what the director wanted of him or what his employers wanted of him. So good life lessons. We have a few minutes remaining on the show, and I want to go around the studio and have our producers step in and talk about life lessons that they've learned in the past year. So who wants to step up to the mic? Bryce Tobin. I've got you covered. Okay. So this uh, this past about about a year at this point, I've been helping uh, a professor on campus create experiments, and uh, one of them, well, two of them, we did a ton of planning for. We did. We're trying to systematically get everything covered, um, and that's just how you do experiments. That's part of it, and you're trying to get all this control. And once we finally got there to do the experiments, you know, we would say to each other, you know, it's not going to go perfect, or you know, there's going to be some things that aren't going to go right. I don't. I don't know what it is, but it seems like nothing went right. We would get there and people would be not paying attention. We would give these people very clear instructions, at least as far as we knew. And they would just do the strangest things with what we asked them to do uh, in these experiments. And so it would mess with our data. There are tons of stuff that we had to throw out just because people were doing it wrong. And uh, an important thing that I learned from that this year is you can plan for chaos all you want. But uh, you're never going to get all of it, and you just got to figure out how to work with it and live with it. Excellent. Who else has something? Rob Sanders. He's in there talking about chaos. It's not just planning for chaos. The chaos inevitably happens, and it usually ends up on a headline on a website, and I read it, and I get mad, and I post it on Facebook about how outraged I am that this chaos happened. And I have to remember Billy Joel. We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. And that's that's tough to do because, you know, (laughs) I'm a young person. I expect the world to work a little more idealistically and right and nice and fairly and honest. And I have to remember, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's all okay. There's problems. It's a good thing we find out about them. We'll work. We'll fix them. It's, you know. That's good. A theme we've had in my family recently is – with my kids, if you're developing a talent or you're, you're trying to audition for something, have confidence and just go audition. Even if you think somebody might have the inside track, you never know if the judges uh, will bring some subjective thought to the, to the audition. Uh, they may not like the other person's tights if it's a dance audition. Um, you just have to put yourself out there and be true to yourself and have confidence. All right. I really like that. Um, This is Madison already (laughs) speaking. Um, I think kind of the major thing that I've learned is just to roll with the punches and just to be adaptable. Um, This semester has been interesting. Got hit by a car. You know, just crazy stuff that's happened, you know. And um, the most that I've just learned is just to be able to go with it, you know, because – and also to – be up in other parts of your life because if you procrastinate in some areas you need to think oh 
I'll just do that the other day. Well, you don't know. Maybe you'll come down with something or maybe this will happen. And so I just think that can apply, you know, just for other parts of life, too. You know, like, don't wait to tell someone how much they care to you. You know, I've lost quite a few loved ones this year, and that's kind of been a major thing in my life is just to make sure that the people that I know and I care about know that I do. And so just to be able to express gratitude, I also think. Very important. Thanks. Skylar. Um, so when you asked me to think of how my life has changed or what I've learned in the last year, the only thing that I could think of that really changed in my life is I've had to grow out these fingernails for playing the guitar. <laughs> and it's exa- exactly like one year ago in January I had to start doing that So because I switched to classical guitar and you have to have these nasty long fingernails on the right hand. And that was something that I just dreaded. I did not want to do um, because I enjoy rock climbing, which you have to use your fingers for. I like mm-hmm. playing sports and, and uh, you know, that can get in the way. And so I was also worried about like um, dating girls <laughs> and because it's kind of weird, you know, like having these nails, that was one thing. It is, that... it is kind of strange to have nicer nails than your date. Exactly. <laughs> well, so, so this, these nails have, have brought up a lot of lessons. One of them is um, actually since I started growing out the nails, I've had a lot more success with girls, um, even though I had these. Because I think I tried to like, I tried to realize, you know, it doesn't matter. Like, I guess like if I look the best or whatever, it's more like how I present myself and my attitude and like trying to have fun and be happy with them. And actually, they they like my nails. The girls that I've dated this year really like, just like Bryce said, they're like, you take such good care of your nails because I have jealous. They're just <laughs> jealous. They just want them. But yeah, so they look healthy. Yeah, so I guess the lesson that I've kind of learned from my nails is don't let what other people think of you like try and and hinder you from from doing what you want to do. And uh, and I also I also think like we're in control of our own happiness. We're in control of of um, of ourselves. I think I think that's something that I learned a lot, even just from growing these dumb nails out. Excellent. So, Tyler Mail. Uh, I think my lesson is kind of similar to what Skyler's was. Um, so for the, for, the, for the majority of this year, I was in Germany um, serving a mission for the LDS Church. And kind of the purpose of that is to um, bring people closer to Christ, kind of help them um, enjoy life a little more um, by becoming better people and, and developing characteristics that can help them in life. And one of the things that I learned is that the best way to help other people um, is really just to be yourself. Um, you don't need to pretend to uh, maybe be an expert about everything. You don't need to um, try to pretend that you're somebody that you're not. Rather, um, kind of keep your own character, keep your own personality, um, because you never know how you're going to be able to connect to people. Um, and so, you know, for me, I'm kind of more of a humor type of guy. I'm comedic sort of person. I like laughing and having fun. And so, by establishing these characteristics and establishing relationships on that, um, I was able to connect to people and they were able to enjoy um, having me around. And I was able to convey a message of Christ um, by using those. All right. Thanks for sharing, everyone. This has been the Matt Townsend Show. Andy McQuinn filling in for Matt today. We hope that uh, Matt had a great reunion with his daughter as she returned from Jerusalem. Thanks for listening to the Matt Townsend Show. This is BYU Radio on Sirius XM 143.